Peter started out on his trip, and some of the believers from Joppa went along with him. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good for you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So then, Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh God, as we consider this narrative, we pray for insight and understanding on who you are and on who we are. And we pray that you will help us to understand what kind of relationship you're calling us into with you, with ourselves, and with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's great to see all of you here today. And wow, what a great song, Nick and, and Song Lab. That was fantastic. Um, I'm in a couple of community groups we uh, we have our work cut out for us to uh, to produce the way that you have. That was really really fantastic and such an important word, especially as we enter now into this winter season, where we will be working on the theme of equality in the kingdom. And so we have a a number of uh, guests, other other preachers who will be joining me in sharing over the weeks to come. Kendra Arsenault, Sylvia Hordish, our own Sylvia, Claudia Allen, and our own. Michelle Odinma, who can pretty much do everything. Um, you, you will soon find out she's going to sing for us uh, later. But all of these will be sharing in this winter season as we discuss equality in the kingdom of God. It's an important subject because equality hasn't always been and isn't even now a universally accepted concept within the Christian faith. Conversely, Christian faith communities have often been the most egregious in promoting inequality whether ethnic, gender, or racial. And so we've got to figure this out. We've got to talk about what the Bible has to say about equality. And so today's text of emphasis ends with the beginning of a sermon by the great preacher Peter, one of Jesus' apostles and most outspoken supporters. The text follows a dramatic intervention from God that initiates Peter's conversion to be an advocate for equality among the believers in the newborn faith. And you can go back and read the entire story in Acts chapter 10. 
And so the intervention that led to Peter's conviction that he must go to the house of a Gentile, Cornelius the centurion, and preached about Jesus, you'll find it all there in Acts chapter 10. So when he had arrived at the home, as we read, uh, he arrived at the home of Cornelius, a non-Jew. Peter did something, as he mentioned explicitly, that was expressly forbidden by observant Jews. He entered the house. He went into the house of Cornelius. And Cornelius then explained the miraculous circumstances that led him to request that Peter come and preach to them. And so it's here in the story that we pick up the key idea for today, where Peter says, I now realize how true it is. So Peter is kind of confessing to his, his conversion experience. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So here we learn from Peter an essential insight into the character of God. God doesn't show favoritism. Now, for Peter, this was new and revolutionary. He had spent his entire life believing that he came from a special group of people who had a special and exclusive relationship with God. Now, you might say he had some reason to believe this. Remember what God had said way back in Exodus chapter 19. This is Exodus 19, verse 4. Uh, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. This is God talking to Moses with the intention that Moses was going to communicate this message to the rest of the people who have just been rescued from slavery in Egypt. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, all of the ethnos, all of the people, you will be a treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Exodus 19 seems pretty clear. Israel, the nation, was going to have a special relationship with God and be his, quote, treasured possession. But if we dig a little deeper, we see what God was actually up to. In fact, in Deuteronomy 19, we get some clarification. Uh, this is a little later in the story. Uh, God makes it clear. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter 9, talking again <laughs> to, the, to the people of Israel. Do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land. So this is a little further along in the story, but God is now helping them to understand what's really going on. The Lord, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations. The Lord your God will then drive them out, will drive them out to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand them that this is not because of your righteousness, if you're counting, this is the third time God is saying this. It's not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God is correcting the mis understanding of among the people that they somehow had some innate specialness or were innately holy, and that's why God uh, chose them. In fact, he says that's not the case. God chose Israel not because they were inherently ama amazing, 
but because the surrounding nations were exceedingly wicked. That's according to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And in fact, God indicates his frustration with these people because, again, quoting God himself, they were stiff-necked. And so ultimately, Israel's special relationship was rooted in something more tangible than just showing a preference for a particular ethnic group. Abraham, the father of the Israelites, had believed in a promise God had given to him. And because of that belief, the story of faith runs through the family of Abraham. And even the idea of the family of Abraham being exclusive is rejected by God. In fact, uh, in Galatians chapter 3, we read this. This is in the New Testament now. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham's belief, his faith, is what facilitated the special relationship with him and and for those generations that would come after him, including the early Israelites, but then also for everyone. This issue of faith is the determining factor. And the capacity for faith is open to everyone. And so Peter says, the one who fears him and does what is right is accepted from every nation. So it's nothing but belief expressed in action that enables God to embrace someone as his child. It's not genetic. It's not, ultimately, it's not ethnic. It's certainly not a racial. It's not even gender-based. Everyone has the capacity to embrace in faith of the God of creation. Not ethnic, ethnic, not racial, or no gender parameters. Everyone has the opportunity to embrace faith. If God doesn't then show favoritism, what does this mean for us? Well, if we're going to be followers of the God of the Bible, this means that we too should, uh, should uh, renounce favoritism. It can't be a part of the, the Christian experience. Every single human being is of value to God, and followers of Jesus should be the most inclusive people in the entire world. And yet, the evidence is in. That's most often not the case. Now, uh, favoritism is most often discussed in the context of a parent's relationship to their children. And uh, while we are talking about a broader context than that, the parent-child relationship, I think, is actually a helpful illustration to understand a little bit about favoritism. You know, the Bible presents God as the ultimate parent of the human family. In the Genesis origin story, it's God uh, and his personal creative action that initiates human existence. Existence. God gets down on his hands and knees and he creates uh, the, the first human out of the clay of the earth. And so God is our common parent. Uh, with this in mind, the research of Ellen Weber Libby, author of The Favorite Child, is insightful. She says this, children growing up as the golden child or the unfavored child are equally vulnerable to suffering from symptoms of depression. So favoritism is harmful to everyone. 
it, 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 it harms even the one who's being treated as the favorite. favorite. Favoritism is not helpful. It's harmful to everyone. This is alarming and supported by extensive research. Tony uh, Greenwald of the University of Washington and Thomas Pettigrew of the University of California, Santa Cruz, reviewed studies on discrimination from the last decade and found that prejudice is often rooted in a preference for similar people rather than in an intent to cause harm to others. They assert that the majority of cases of discrimination in the United States don't stem from hostile actions like homophobic speech or acts of violence spurred by racist feelings. Instead, unintentional discrimination through favoritism is often the culprit. This isn't to say that prejudice and hostility are not related to outgroup discrimination, Pettigrew said, but they are not as central to the most discrimination as in-group favoritism. Now, we've seen a lot of out-group hostility over the last few months, last few years, if we're honest, right? We've seen a lot of that. Um, but the, this reacher is saying is actually what's really harmful, or at, at least as, as harmful, is in-group favoritism. And so no wonder God converted Peter through dramatic means to the cause of holistic equality. God knows that favoritism leads to unhealthy and hurtful relationships, and it has no place in God's kingdom and in his church. This is a, an, es, a, 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 an essential subject. If we're going to talk about equality in the church, then we have to talk about favoritism. And, and God is not a God of favoritism. And so, leads us to ask the question, well, what causes us to choose favorites? Why do we keep kind of falling into this, this trap that, that has a negative impact on everybody? Even the, those who, who, who are, are identified as being the favorite. Everybody, everybody is affected badly by favoritism. So what causes us to choose favorites? And uh, there are a bunch of responses to this. By the way, I should note again, you know, I'm not an expert in this field. I am learning. This is a journey for all of us as we think about equality, certainly a journey for me. So I have been, been thankful for the research that others have done that I can share with you today. But uh, as we think about this question, what causes us to choose favorites? There are a bunch of responses, but two that jumped out to me as I was doing the research today. First of all, the similarity. We, we are attracted to things and people who are similar to us. As Greenwald and Pettigrew identified, a similarity plays a big part in choosing favor, favorites. We identify uh, uh, people who are more close to us, and we perceive them to be people that we can connect with. Now, these reasons were examined in a study by Adam Hampton, Amanda Fisher-Boyd, and Susan Spreacher. You can check this out. It's published in the Journal of Social and Personal Concepts. And so they identify uh, five areas here as to why this issue of similarity uh, is, is an issue when we think about favoritism. And so they identify these five areas. First of all, consensual validation, right? Meeting people who share our attitudes makes us feel more confident in our own attitudes about the world and about things around us. So if you love jazz music, meeting a fellow jazz lover shows that loving jazz is okay and maybe even a virtue, and so it validates your own experience. So that's, that's one reason that we associate 
the similarity and, and therefore choose to be favorite, that choose them to be favorites, those people who are most similar to us. Uh, secondly, what's called cognitive evaluation. This explanation focuses on how we form impressions of other people by generalizing from the information that we have. So we learn that a person has something in common with us, and that makes us feel positively about that person because we feel then positively about ourselves. We then assume that the other person, like us, has other positive characteristics. Uh, thirdly, the certainty of being liked. We assume that someone who has a lot in common with us is more likely to like us. So See, see there's a lot going in, inside here. We assume that someone who has commonality with us is more likely to like us, and in turn, we are more likely to like a person if we think they like us. Some deep stuff going on here. The fourth element of this issue of, of being similar and why that is such an attractive feature to us, fun and enjoyable interactions. It's just more fun to hang out with someone when you have a lot in common with them. And then finally, uh, self expansion opportunity. According to self-expansion theory, one benefit of relationships is that we can gain new knowledge and experiences by spending time with someone else. Even though a dissimilar person would more likely provide that area to grow, provide new knowledge and experience, research has shown that people are more likely to see self-expansion opportunities when interacting with someone who is similar rather than dissimilar. It doesn't make any sense, but that's how we, we operate. So we, we, are, we, are, we are compelled to, to relate to people who are similar to us for reasons that oftentimes just don't make any sense. Now, look, you're going to have uh, friends, okay? You're going to have friends. The research on this, by the way, is also well established, established uh, despite social media's attempts to convince us that our friend capacity is unlimited, most people can only maintain good human connections with a maximum of 150 people. That's, that's, that's about your limit of, of the range of, of, of friends that you can really, really uh, develop. But even that is too big. Uh, you're then more likely to have a smaller group, a smaller friend group of closer to 10 to 12 people and then to have a core group of ride or dies, if you will, of three or less. So this reality, though, isn't the problem. The problem exists when as individuals or as a community, we treat people who aren't in our friend group unjustly, unfairly, and show favoritism and bestow privilege out of those friendly relationships to the detriment of the other. That's where things get broken, and that's why God is against favoritism. Now, so the similar, the similar is, is an important element when we think about the question, why do we choose favorites? But then the second element is stereotypes. You know, we have conceptions of people that don't align with reality because we don't really know them. We don't know about them, and so we create stereotypes. A stereotype, as you know, is a fixed is fixed over a generalized belief about a particular group of people. And so we get these ideas about people, we overgeneralize, and uh, that shapes what we feel about people. This has a, a tremendously negative impact. And so researchers have found that people 
tend to view members of outside groups as being more homogenous than members of their own group. It's a phenomenon referred to as the outgroup homogeneity bias. This perception that all members of an outgroup are alike holds true of all groups, whether based on race, nationality, religion, age, or other naturally occurring group affiliations. People tend to see individual differences among the members of their own group, but they tend to see those who belong to the outgroup as being all the same. And so we generalize and we create stereotypes. So we as humans bestow privilege unfairly, and this is a challenge because of these, these areas, and this is what we have to push up against. And so how do we overcome this, this innate <laughs> defect or what seems like an innate defect? That's the issue today. Like, okay, so this is a reality. We're going to be wrestling with equality over the next few weeks and months. What are some strategies that we can start using to overcome this, again, what seems like an innate problem that keeps popping up in the human experience? Now, again, people smarter than me on this subject have identified very distinct things that we can do. And so I have three strategies for you. First of all, we can recognize and redirect. It's possible for you to dislike the idea of prejudice and still act in prejudiced ways. While some people may want to claim that they don't see stereotypes at all, a more realistic strategy is to accept that they exist, but challenge them by coming up with examples of people within a specific group that defy the labels that you may have created for them. Ultimately, implicit bias functions like a habit. Once you become aware of it, you can take steps to break it. This leads to the next strategy, accept then push against your limitations. It's human nature to say, oh, that's just how I work. I, when I can't change, but that's, that's not going to do it. You can't do that. You've got to challenge your biases. You're going to challenge your preferences. You've got to challenge these, these things that are making us have favorites. Ask where they come from. Ask where, where, where these, these, these ideas are originating from and push against it. And then finally, we have to set up systems for change whether in a corporation or, or, or like a church. We have to set up systems of, of change. We have to make sure that we are intentionally working toward diversity and for, toward inclusion. And that means whether it's our ministry positions or again, if you're in a corporation and you're hiring people, there's got to be systems to help to overcome these biases, these, these, uh, this favoritism that is, again, kind of innately part of our experience, but for individuals as well. And this may mean that as an individual, we may need to be intentional about incorporating strategies to get to know people outside of our regular sphere. We have to be intentional about this or, and push against our biases or we're never going to overcome them. But the reality is that the human strategies are ultimately going to be insufficient. They're important. And we should, we should certainly be striving to implement them in our experience. But our human strategies are going to be insufficient for doing the really the heart change that needs to happen inside. So we should use the strategies, but recognize that we need also conversion in the heart. That's what happened to Peter. He was converted in the heart, and he became an advocate for inclusion and, and equity and equality. We need that same transformation, and so we can take heart in the work of Jesus himself. You know, think about Jesus' experience. He surrounded himself with a diverse 
an eclectic group of people while he was here ministering on earth in person. He engaged with people seen as outcasts. He crossed cultural barriers and spoke with people foreign to the dominant culture of his upbringing. And most famously, he incorporated women into his inner circle in ways that was absolutely revolutionary for his day. And so, in Jesus, we can take heart that God has inserted himself into the human experience and shown us the way. In Jesus, we then also can overcome our biases and our preferences and and our favorites. Romans chapter 3 says this, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Because Jesus was inclusive, shunning favoritism, we too can be empowered to do the same. And so the strategies that we may use can be empowered by the Spirit working in our hearts to make the heart change that is impossible for us to do alone. In Jesus, we can live out lives of radical inclusion, equality, equity, and overcome the temptation to show favoritism. We can come to embrace the reality that God doesn't want to abolish privilege. God is not against, is not for abolishing privilege. Rather, he wants everyone to experience a privilege. Being a part of the kingdom of God, God gives privilege. God wants everyone to have privilege. And so as we continue on this journey in the weeks and months to come to wrestle, (laughs) I shouldn't say weeks and months, this is a journey that's going to be endless, that we continue to let God work in us and do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so as we do that, but specifically during this winter season, when we're talking about inequality and we're hearing from some of our other preachers, may God do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. May he change our hearts and change our minds and empower us as we use the strategies to push back against favoritism and bias. May God make the change in our hearts and minds that we cannot do on our own. In Him, we have our hope. Amen.